Good morning. Good morning. Bacon, what? Okay, if you did not eat a lot of bacon, I understand if you do leave in the middle of the service and you need to go out. Um, I joke all the time to people who, if I meet somebody who's a Jew, and I say to them, the new covenant gift is, is the law is done, and you can eat all the bacon you want. So if there's ever any like, motivation to come to Jesus, it's bacon. Anyways, so happy Father's Day. I just realized I am on a sugar rush because I have not been eating a lot of sugar, and I had about 13 pieces of candied bacon, and so <laughs> give me a little bit of grace this morning. Um, well, we are in a series on um, uh, in the book of Ephesians, so if you'd open up your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5, we'll, we're going to start in verse 1, and uh, if you had the chance to be with us this past Friday at our Father's Friday, um, we had a panel and a bunch of questions were submitted, and one of the questions was, what is the goal or the purpose of parenting, and then a sub-question, I believe, was of fatherhood, and uh, Matt Souls, who's our youth pastor, he says, the goal is to shoot your kids. And we're like, now if you don't know Matt, Matt loves to shoot things, so um, we're thinking, what? And, and what he's actually talking about is the goal um, is to take your kids and to shoot them so they become functional human beings for the God's glory and the good of society. And uh, we talked about the major big purposes of parenting and fatherhood, and I want to just give you two big, big ideas about the major purpose of being a dad. So dads, listen up, and by God's grace and providence, um, dads come up in the first verse or two of Ephesians chapter 5 in an interesting way. So we get to tie this directly into our sermon. But dads, you have two big jobs. Number one is to release, and number two is to reveal. Release is the easy one. I want to tell you what I think the hard one is. That when you raise a son or daughter, if a kid grows up in your home, you are teaching your kids two big things about the Godhead or who God is. Number one, as you raise your kids, you are teaching and forming in your kids their God concept, who God is, what that means that God is a father, what it means that God is an affectionate father, a disciplining father, a loving father. So you are developing their God concept. So uh, moms and dads, you want kids to grow up in your home, and you do not want them to be repelled by God because of the way that you treated them. Can I get an amen? Dads, right? Good. Um, the second thing you do is you reveal to your kids the nature and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ by how you treat your wife. That husbands are supposed to love their wives as who loves the church? Christ loves the church. And so you are teaching your kids by your sheer presence in the home, how you interact with them and how you interact with your spouse. You're forming fundamentally their God concept. No pressure, but like go at it and have a good. You can understand why um, you have such an important and huge job. And I love being a dad. And uh, I, I am amazed that in my home, um, some of the ways that I am rubbing off on my children, it's like I look at them and I see that they're made clearly in my image. So, okay, rumor has it, I am competitive. I disagree completely. Um, my son is apparently equally as competitive. So he took a pen. He was not supposed to write on his pillow, obviously. And here's the one word. He's three and a half. Here's the one word he writes. W-O-N. Like one. Like, I won. Like, I win. Like, he's the eternal champion. So what happens is, when I beat you, it's because I'm better than you. But when you beat me, it's because you're cheating, which is obvious. Like, that's apparent to everybody. 
So the first time I beat my son, and he's like, you cheated. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my joke. But he's not joking. He actually means it. Like, this is scary. So yesterday, we're in the pool. It's a beautiful day. And I, my five-year-old daughter, my three-year-old son, they're in the pool. And I say, why don't you race? First one to the other end of the pool and back wins. Sounds like a good idea. So we give my son a head start because I know he doesn't like to lose, so I'm trying to throw him a bone here. And, and uh, so he um, starts swimming, and then my daughter starts catching up to him and beats him. And he freaks. No, I want to win. I want to win. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't do that. That's just weird, right? <laughs> so he's, like, crying, and he's yelling, and he's angry. And so then he takes, as they turn around, uh, he takes uh, my daughter, and he holds her underwater because he's angry. And I'm like, you're going to kill your sister. I'm like, no. Our neighbors now think I'm crazy because I'm yelling across the pool. I'm like, no, let her go. Don't touch her, right? And I'm, like, trying to break through all the chaos of his anger. Of course, with yelling, it always works in my family. So, um, so then he's on his way back. And I'm like, if you do that again, so help me God, you know, whatever. And, uh, and then he's almost back and she starts beating him. So he grabs her by the life vest and he just holds her under and she's underwater. And I'm like, out of the pool right now, you're done. And I'm like, get in the house. And uh, so he goes inside and I forgot about him, I think for like five minutes, which I'm just watching the kids and they're swimming. He's like, daddy, I'm in here, you know. So I come in the house, and here's what he says. You make me so angry. And he throws something. Now, what Bible verse is going through my head? Ephesians chapter 6. Oh, wait, that's a sermon in a couple weeks. Fathers, do not uh, provoke your children to anger or wrath. And I'm thinking in that moment, might not have succeeded right now. (laughs) You make me so angry angry. At that point, of course, I was so calm and cool and collected. I was like, you know, kid, I'm sorry. And I was like, no, you don't talk to me like that whatsoever. You're standing a timeout. And that timeout went longer. And uh, it was interesting because I, I was, it's not that I wasn't unaware of what I was preaching today. It's just that it took a minute for verse one in chapter five to kind of hit me in the face, you know? And uh, so I remember thinking to myself, like, I am forming his God concept. Is God a reactive, angry disciplinarian who, when I tell him how I feel, gets even angrier at me? Well, the answer is obviously like, no. Now, should my kid ever talk to me like that? Well, no, but I can definitely see how in my lack of patience, I just threw him off. Go, get away from me. Go sit and time out. How could you? And I didn't even take the time to engage the kid. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm developing his God concept. So that Evening, I kind of just overcompensated a little bit, gave him a whole bunch of extra just play time and alone time. But you know what I love about little boys is it's like you always have a second and third and fourth and fifth and hundredth chance. It's almost like my little dude always believes that I want to be the best that I can be and he never holds the pass against me. It's really kind of neat. I feel like I could probably learn something from him. <laughs> and, uh, and then he's all, he's just a-okay and he's all good and sometimes I need to apologize to the kid and sometimes we just need to play and and I need to show him that I love him. But I love this. The kid just goes to bed, and he still loves me. And I want my son to grow up knowing, without a shadow of a doubt, um, what God is like, and that his dad loves him, and therefore God loves him, because I'm creating his God concept. So I got these little girls in my home, and <clears throat> we play this game. Because, again, I'm trying to instill into my kids that God doesn't just love them, but they are beloved. Do you see the difference? Like, one is, yeah, yeah, I love you. The other is, you are you are my beloved. I am filled with affectionate love toward you. So we play this game in our home. Um, again, it's kind of overcompensating, but I want my kids to have a God concept where they are God's beloved. So here's what we do. I'll say, hey, guess what? 
And you know what their answer is? What, what? I love you. So all the time, like 30 times a day right now, I'm not even kidding. It's like constant. They'll run up to me, guess what? Love you, right? And, and all the time, and what it's doing is, and is it cheesy? Totally cheesy. I got a seven and five-year-old girl and three-year-old son. Like everything's cheesy at this point. But the point is like, they are now like jumping at it and they're like really smart. And I'm like, hey kids, guess what? And like, I love you. And I'm like, no, I just had to tell you about something that's going on. But I can't even have a conversation with them as soon as we're, so try with them. Go out to my kids and say, guess what? And they'll probably look at you and go, yeah, I know you love me. It's fine, whatever. Um, but like what I'm trying to do with them is to develop in their little souls a really profound God concept. You are beloved of God. And when you see the way I treat you, I just want you to get a glimpse, a shadow of the nature and the character of God. And when I totally royally mess up, I want to own that so you know this isn't what God is like. And then when I treat the way I treat my wife, I want them to see this is what Jesus is like. Jesus sacrificially loves the church and gives his best for when I don't. I need to say I'm sorry a lot because we all stink sometimes, right? Right? So as dad, how we live matters and reverberates for generations. Like, we have one of the coolest, most profound privileges on the planet. How we nurture and the nature we give them reverberate in their souls for generations and generations. Now, you're probably wondering, Michael, talk about Ephesians. All right, great. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, here's what's happened. Paul has just given the Ephesians a list. Um, don't do this, do this, and here's why. Don't do this, do this, here's why. And th- there are a lot of, we'll just say, lists. But here's what he understands about all of these so what's about the Christian faith. Most of them did not grow up with a Christian mom or dad. They came to Jesus as an adult. They have some decades of spiritual baggage, habits, patterns, ways of doing things, ways of treating men and women and work and thinking about sexuality and all of these things that are fundamentally broken and they're fundamentally pagan. And so Jesus comes into this and he's like, look, if you're going to follow Jesus, you got to do all of this differently. And he's trying to teach them, here's what a Christ follower does. And, and, and here's the reality. Um, if you've been doing something one way for 40 years and someone just comes up to you and says, change the way you're doing it, here's the right way to do that, how's it going to go for you? Is it going to change the way you love your wife? Is it going to change the way you respect your husband? Is it going to change the way you work? No. Like, it's going to take some time, and it's going to be hard. And here's big picture, I think, what the Apostle Paul in this section is trying to encourage them to do. He's trying to encourage them and equip them to overcome, because overcoming sin that you grew up with is incredibly difficult. And so we're going to talk this morning as we walk through Ephesians 5, 1 to 14, what does it really mean to overcome? So the mission statement of Village Church is to make disciples who go, grow, and it's like you just listened to everything I said. Are you hot right now? Right, so don't fall asleep. It's a shorter message, okay? We're going to be done in eight minutes. So in eight minutes, you can all go away. I'm lying to you through my teeth, but it's going to be shorter. That's what children's ministry told me. So you can do it. I challenge you to not fall asleep. We are still resolving our air conditioning issues. Um, If you're going to overcome sin, you need a vision of something better than what you have to imitate. You must imitate. You must find something or someone to imitate. You're created to do this. So like your words, for example, there is not one word that you speak that is original to you. And if it is, it's probably an annoying word. No offense. Your clothes, you're like, look at how original I am. You are not original. You are a clone and a mimic from what the cultural elites want you to believe is stylish. And you go into a store that has limited options of what you can pick. And you pick the subgenre of which there are 100,000 or more other people in that subgenre of the clothes you're wearing. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying 
It is. We are mimickers. This is what we do. You think your car is amazing and unique. 15,000 or 100,000 or 400,000 people have it. The question is, who will I imitate? That's the question. And so here's what we get. Number one in your notes, I must imitate. Chapter five, verse one, I must imitate God's fatherly love. Look at this verse. Therefore, be what? Imitators. You can wake up. It's cool. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Children are hardwired to imitate. You, adults, me, we are curmudgeons when it comes to imitating. Let me illustrate. How many of you want to play the hokey pokey with me right now? Anybody? Yeah, we got Peter over here. Strange, weird, okay, right? You do the hokey pokey and you do what? You turn yourself around because that is what it's all about, right? And some of you, like if I'm like, we're going to play the hokey pokey, you're like, I'm tired, my body hurts, like I've been working all week long, I just want to sit back, you know, and I mean, asking you to pick up a pen and take notes is like exhausting, okay? So you get a bunch of kids in this room and I'm like, hey, village kids, you want to play the hokey pokey? What are they going to do? Yes! Like they are so pumped, right? And they're like, I'm like, do this, like, ah, turn around, I'll do whatever you say, right? I mean, they're just, as, as you get older, you get jaded and a little bit lazy, right? No, no. Uh, Kids are pumped. And there's something unique about a kid. Now, here's what I want you to get. As you get older, you do get jaded. But when you listen to Jesus, apparently Jesus likes the way kids are better than the way he likes adults are. So I want you to, I want you to just think about this for a moment. Uh, Jesus wants you to have faith like an adult. No, like what? Like a child. He wants you to trust intuitively, intrinsically. If I say it, just, just do it. Jesus says, do this. You're like, okay, I'll do it. Done. No, no questions asked. Come to me, Jesus says, like a what? Like a child. Like a jaded, hesitant adult. Prove to me. Who are you really? Like, prove to me. Why should I trust you? No, like, come to me like a child who is safe. Receive the kingdom like a child. When a child receives something, a child does not say, what did I do to get this? That's what adults say who have been jaded and have been, have been loved very poorly. A child just receives it and believes and says, thank you. Or they just go run off and play, which is their way of saying thank you. And we are to imitate like a what? Like a child. Matthew 18, three to four. Here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven of heaven. You guys remember Abraham? What was his name before God gave him the name Abraham? Abram. Good. Genesis 12. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Did Abram know where he was going? No. Like if it were me, I'd be like, can you please print out like some maps for me? Or can you download the map to my Google Maps? That would be great. I want to know, um, where am I going to be staying? Is there going to be running water? Like, can you give me just a 411 and everything that's going to be there? I need to know what to pack and what to bring with me. How many camels do I need? And, and here's the point. Is, is, is God's like, not telling you anything. You just leave and you just go. And on one level, you think, wow, the amount of faith that it takes. Now, here's a little, like, just snapshot for you to understand Abram's story. Was Abraham supposed to bring his family or his kindred or anybody with him? The answer is no. But he brought who? Lot. And you know what happened when he brought Lot? Every bad thing that happens to Abraham for the next few chapters is because Lot is there. It's almost like God was like, I told you, obey me and do it the way I said it. And even Abraham or Abram could not obey simply like a child. 
I love this. Beloved children ask why out of curiosity. Right? Do you remember that when your kids were little? Why, 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 why? Like the seagulls. <laughs> Beloved pre-adolescents ask why out of skepticism. Even, even in pre-adolescence, we're starting to get jaded. We're starting to get jaded. And here's the challenge is I get, let me hear, just hear me. I, I get being jaded with some people. The problem is we transfer it to God. And with God, our relationship is supposed to be like that of a beloved child. So let's make a distinction here. Uh, what are kids with bad dads likely to do? Just say bad things. Uh, if you grow up with an alcoholic, you are four times more likely to abuse alcohol and be an alcoholic yourself. You don't need a multi-million dollar study from the United States government to tell you that. You just need to like, use common sense. If you grow up with a father who abuses you, despite how much you hated the abuse, statistically, will you be more likely to abuse your family? Absolutely. If you grow up with a dad who is smoking, addicted to pornography, will you be exponentially more likely to do those things yourself? Yes, why? Because we're wired to be imitators, and when we are young, we take all of this in, and then it ends up popping out of us later in life. It's the same reason why many of you, you grew up and you said, I will never do that to my son or daughter, and then look what happened. Did you do it? Many of you did. Why? Because if you're not very careful, we repeat what we grew up with. But what do kids with good dads do? Usually, they're more inclined to act like their dads. Dads who are faithful to mommy are, are raising kids who are going to be much more inclined to be faithful to mommy. Dads who speak kindly and with love to their wife are going to raise kids who know what it means to speak to a woman with kindness and integrity. Dads who serve in the church, are your kids going to be more likely to serve in the church? The answer is yes. Dads who read the Bible regularly and their kids see it, will that inform and shape how the kid will personally interact with the Bible as he or she grows up? The answer is yes. Statistically, if you love Jesus, there is a higher probability that your kids are going to love Jesus than if you didn't. Do you understand that? And so here's what he says. He says, look, I want you to be imitators of God, and I want you to do it as beloved children. I don't want you to imitate um, some bad version of your dad, and if you have to bypass your dad because he wasn't great, go and look to God the Father and imitate him because you know what? Here's the problem. If you are going to have a behavior pattern that is stuck in your life, it's going to have to happen because you're imitating somebody else. Here's a couple big so what's. To be an imitator of God means to be a student of God's word and God's people. If you do not study God himself, you will never be able to imitate him. You have to be obsessed with studying God. It's called theology, the study of God himself. I've been teaching the Bible regularly for 18 years now, and I still am amazed every time I teach more and more what I learn about God and learn about myself. I've barely begun to probe the depths of the nature and the character of God. And I just want to look at you and say, you, if you're going to be an overcomer, you have to obsess over studying the nature and the character of God so you can have something to imitate. I keep wanting to say intimidate, but that is not the right word. The hard reality for the Christian life is, is you weren't raised like this, many of you. So you have to learn this from God himself or from other godly people. And you may, I mean, I am amazed at the amount of people we talk to and they have never seen a functional home in their entire life. They've never seen a normal home with a mom and a dad who like each other, forget about love each other, who like each other. And so you, 
you may have to be, for someone, the, the biggest picture of functionality they've ever seen. And here's what I know about most of your homes. You're not the most functional people on the planet. But if you have Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, you're infinitely more functional than half the junk going outside out, out of these walls. Number two, or one B, I must imitate Jesus' sacrificial love. He goes on. He wants you to imitate God the Father. And here's what he says. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want to draw out a couple things, a fragrant offering. When God sees sacrificial love in a three-year-old or a 90-year-old, he loves it. You want to pump him up? Like This is like a fragrant offering. This is like roses and the most beautiful candle on the planet. It is the smell of bacon to a pastor on Father's Day church brings joy to my soul, right? You're like, I want to make my dad happy. My kid, like my three-and-a-half-year-old and my five-year-old, let's be straight, not so much my seven-year-old, um, wants to make me happy. They do. And, and, and God's like, he's, he's looking and saying, you want to make me happy? Like, sacrificially love. Study Jesus and do that in small ways and in big ways. This is what I want for you. This is what I want. No sin is beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. Underneath, in the subtext of this verse, is the author who was an executor of Christians. And this author can say, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And some of you are the most terrible dads. You have had a very, very sordid past. You have not loved your family well, your wife well, your kids well. And I want to just speak to you in behalf of a man who murdered Christians. There is no sin and no failure that Jesus cannot forgive, redeem, and heal. And the murderer can write this. And the murderer wants to see the dad who takes and yells and takes and yells and takes and yells and hits and screams and says, I want to make you, I want to transform you into a good father like your father in heaven. And I want to show you what sacrificial love is where you give your first and your best rather than taking their first and their best through your anger and violence. And number three in here, just notice love is sacrifice. Love gives first, receives second, and never takes. Love receives, don't get me wrong, but it gives first, it receives second, and never takes. And this is going to be important because as we transition to the second point in our sermon, um, we, Paul has to set this foundation for you. And number two is I must purge. Number one, if you're going to overcome whatever sin is in your life, you have to find something better to imitate. But number two, this is a strong word. This is to eradicate at all costs, to remove all vestiges of existence of whatever this is. It is to get completely out of the scenario. And this is where the sermon goes from, yay, I want to be a good dad, to, I, wow, I don't know if I really want to do this. And um, verse eight says, for a one time, you were darkness. He doesn't say you were acting like darkness. What does he say? You were. This was your identity. There was no presence of light inside of you. Everything that came out of you was darkness. This, is, this was their identity. And so as we think about this principle of darkness, I, for me personally, my two earliest memories um, in life, 
three, four years old, were of darkness. The first was I got zipped up in a sleeping bag. I zipped myself up, let me be clear. <laughs> I zipped myself up in a sleeping bag. It was a full, um, um, whatever, mummy sleeping bag that totally covered you up. And I just freaked, and I'm yelling. And it felt like I was in there forever. It was probably like three seconds when my mom came in and said, oh, silly boy, what are you doing, you know? But in my little three, four-year-old brain, that was forever. The second was uh, there were these losers we used to play with at our old neighborhood, and uh, the older brother... Um, would lock me in the closet in their pantry. And uh, I remember just being stuck in there, and I'm like, oh, like, oh, just petrified. My two earliest memories of our, are of darkness. I mean, that's powerful. I mean, darkness has a way of, of affecting you deeply. I mean, what thrives in the darkness? Bugs, tarantulas, cockroaches, mice, bats. I could go on and on. I mean, I, Maybe later you can make a connection for me, but it, it intrigues me that so much of what we call creepy thrives in the darkness. I've often wondered, like, did God wire it that way on purpose? Is that just a cultural thing? But what dies in the darkness? Fruit, vegetables, plants, flowers, basically anything that gives beauty and sustenance dies in the dark, by and large. Darkness prevents growth, it prevents vision, and it supports hiding. Unless you're a bat or a spider, darkness is not good for you. He goes on, and he's going to describe now in verse 3 what darkness is. And here's what he says. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. He is not saying you cannot call sin sin. He obviously just named them. He's saying it should not be Found. I shouldn't be able to walk into the Ephesian church and hear that somebody is committing adultery or somebody is committing sexual immorality or somebody is uh, just giving themselves unrepentantly over to sexual sin. I shouldn't be able to walk into the people of God, the people of light, and find such poignant, life-sucking, soul-sucking darkness in the community. That shouldn't, that shouldn't be there. And then he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. I mean, these... Uh, Light and dark are going to magnify three things. You want to really figure out if you have light and dark in you? You find these three subject matters, and you tell me how they're going. Sex, money, and words. Sex, money, and words. These magnify the reality of whether there is light or there is darkness that is primarily controlling your life. Sex, money, words. The three biggies. Light just exposes these things, and God uses these for great good and great glory. And when darkness gets a hold of these things, they're used for great harm. They are lust. They are taking. I will use you for my pleasure, my satisfaction. I will take from you what I want, and maybe I'll give you in return if it means I'm going to get more later. Love says, I will give you my first and my best for your good and for God's glory. And then he gives a threat. Here's what he says. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Why this threat even matters. Number one, hell is terrible. He doesn't have to say hell for it to be explicitly on the table here. He's saying you have no hope if you will persistently and belligerently knowing that it's sin, run into it without repentance. I'm just telling you right now, I can't give you any confidence the Holy Spirit is in you. If you're just going to run headlong into it and you will not repent and you will be belligerent, this is the threat on the table for every believer. And then number two, little kids want to please their dad. You don't get to be in his kingdom. 
And a kid wants to be with his dad. This is actually one of the threats. I, I'm a father to you, and I want you to be with me, and then you're going to get kicked out of my kingdom. And then the inheritance was a sign of honor from a father to a son. No inheritance. There's no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Number two B here, I must purge justifying lies. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It doesn't hurt anyone. You deserve this. What kind of God would hold this back from you? He or she had it coming. The heart, if it is an idol-making factory, the mind is a lie-justifying factory. We will do anything we can to justify our current behavior, and this is why the Word of God needs to come into our lives and it needs to inform what is true. You need to understand this. You are a master manipulator of your own self. And if you are not careful, you will fall prey to your own foolish thinking. And the heart is truly deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? To see, I must purge enabling influences. He says in verse 7, Therefore do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness. This begs the question, how do I deal with my non-Christian friends? Is Paul telling you, get rid of all non-Christians in your life? Please say no. No, but there are certain people and circumstances in your life that uniquely enable you to be a terrible person. There are certain people and circumstances in your life that facilitate sin that causes you to take instead of love sacrificially. There are certain people in your life that you, because of your weakness, do not have the strength to be around. I want you to hear me. You don't have to, when you purge somebody, you don't have to be mean and kill them, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But you need to get them out of your life because you have no capacity to handle them. And if you're going to be holy and be light, then you need to purge enabling influences. Number three, I must expose. I must expose my path with light. Verse eight says, for one time you were darkness, but now I love this. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I'm going to share with you a question that came out of my study here. Of everything that I've learned from this sermon, I'm going to just bring you to the very top, the most important one. This is the thing that I just read this and, and honestly wrecked me. Here's the question. Does the word of God have the authority to alter your behavior? Does the word of God have the authority to alter your behavior? When I speak to my kids, how many times until they obey? We have these lines. When do you obey? The, the first time. When do you obey? Right away. When do you obey? Whatever you say. <laughs> and yet with God and the word, if the word teaches it, the immediate posture of my heart should be whatever you say. Right away. No questions asked. I trust you. You're good, right, holy, righteous. Everything you say is for your glory and for my good. I bend the knee to you. And yet we hear what the word of God says and we postpone very easily. I must expose my path. With, I need to let the word of God not just speak directly and show directly. I must walk the path he lays out before me without question. The way you want your children to obey you, follow me, that is how you should react and respond to the word of God. Make sense? 
3B, I must expose sin appropriately. Here's what he says. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead what? Expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. Here's what it means. Um, He's like saying, look, I hear about the things you're doing, and they're so vile and disgusting, I can't even talk about them publicly. They're X-rated, and this is a PG audience. It's shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. I just, I got to tell you this. The majority of you will never overcome. I'm going to tell you why. Just hear me clearly. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just going to tell you why the majority of you will never overcome your sin because you're afraid to put it in the light. You will hide it and you'll hide it and you'll hide it. And what happens to, to sin in the dark? It grows. And you can even pull the weed out. But if you don't get it from the root, what will happen? It will just grow back. And this is why you are in habitual sin over and over and over again. Because you're afraid. What will they think of me? What will happen to my reputation? Could my wife or husband or my kids even handle the truth of what's going on? As long as it's a secret, it will win and it will control you. And you and the Holy Spirit have to do some work. What do you love more, your reputation or your holiness? And at some point, you have to appropriately bring dark things into appropriate light. Now, I'm not saying, like right now, get up and shout to everybody, your deepest, darkest sin. But there are places where it is appropriate to expose what is going on. And if you are in a position where you're not overcoming because you are imitating and you are purging, but then you fall right back into it, it is here where you are failing 98.75% of the time. That's statistically accurate. The mature Christian should live the most transparent life. I should not be afraid of any question being asked. One of my favorite um, questions to ask people is, what is the one question you don't want me to ask you right now? (laughs) Try it. It's like, oh. And then it comes to their brain right away. It's like, huh. And then you're like, that, right there, right there. What is that? Tell me that, right? Now, most of the time, I don't deserve to know the answer, but there are some contexts where that is appropriate. But we, there should be nothing I'm afraid for you to ask me. Take my phone take my iPad, take my computer, put video cameras in my home, in my family. I was thinking about how weird that, not in the bathrooms, that's just straight up weird. Watch what happens. I don't, I don't want to be afraid that you're going to probe a little bit too deep into my life. There's a circumstance um, years ago, um, there was a dad who wrote something inappropriate on, I, I believe, a, a kid's Facebook. And I, I confronted him and I just, I was nice. Let me just be straight. I was really nice. And I said, um, like, did you, hey, do you feel like that was appropriate? That kind of, you know, set me off a little bit. And uh, here's what he said. Um, that is none of your business. Mind your own business. Isn't it? <laughs> okay. And what this person did is they put a barrier around themselves and said, not welcome. And if you're going to be a Christian who is living transparently, if you're already exposing your sin, there is no threat to you when someone says, hey, I see this sin in your life. Can we talk? We should be the most transparent and open to correction of anybody in the world. We have this little saying on staff. We say, we even address the hunches. I would rather have my hunch addressed and be wrong than have it not addressed and be right and grow into something that kills me or ruins a relationship. And so this is, this is part of the challenge. And this is why Christians, by the way, don't confront each other because we stink at being confronted. Who are you to say that to me? And yet we should live the most transparent life. And I just want to remind you, the gospel tells you, you're a sinner who's fallen short of the glory of God. So if you think you need to be perfect, 
Like, Jesus did that for you. We already know you're broken. We already know your marriage isn't perfect, and your kids aren't perfect, and your devotional life isn't perfect, and your service isn't perfect, and your work isn't perfect. We already know. And the least you could do is say, you know, you're right. Help me get better, because that's what mature Christians do. And finally, 3C, and this is where it ends. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is from some Christian hymn. We don't know the origins of it, um, but it is something that apparently they were familiar with. It was Christ-centered, so we know this happened after the resurrection of Jesus. And I just, I just love this. The, here's the implication. It's like Paul looks at the Ephesian church and he says, some of you are just asleep, and you have been hiding yourself from the light of Christ. And what, here's what needs to happen. The light of Jesus needs to shine in front of you and show you the path and to show you the reality of the sin inside of you. And some of you, though you have trusted in Christ, you hide from the light of Christ because you are, we'll just say, sinning and you don't really want to overcome. And I believe that this third one, this is the hardest. If you will overcome, it will require exposure. Now here's what God does to his kids after the right amount of time. If you are God's kid, He disciplines you, right? And if there are sins over and over in your life, here's what I believe God does at the right time after the certain amount of, we'll just say, long-suffering with you. He will expose you. I don't know about you. I would always rather expose myself than to be caught. But eventually, I can't tell you when. God's timing is different with everybody. He will expose you because he loves you because he wants you to live in the light. And he knows that when the light is shown on sin, sin crumbles and dies under the effects. If you had a kid and you saw sin and pain and something that was destroying them, would you shine your light on it? The answer is yes. Now, some of you are candles. Some of you are spotlights. I have been told I am a spotlight. We like to shine brightly (laughs) on sin and say, see it for all it is. Some of you are like candles. You're like, you're just very subtle and you just walk. And then the the light doesn't necessarily like blind other people, but it's just enough. It's just enough to show them. You're not like all up in their grill, but you're like just enough that they see when they're around you. They start to see what is really happening to them. They just, they get a glimpse of it. And you are relationship builders and you are savvy and you are patient, Right? Some of you, God has made you to be spotlights, and that's good. Let me just give you a warning to everyone who's a spotlight. If you're going to be that bold and blunt with other people's sins, be even more bold and blunt with your own. Be very, 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 very transparent. When people confront you, thank them, embrace it, and change immediately. Very few people can handle, handle being a spotlight person because our pride loves to put us in a position where we say, look at your junk, and we use the spotlight to one-up people or to assert ourselves over them. No, no, no. The spotlight is always there to serve, and if you have not first shown the light on your soul and led with transparency, you will become an arrogant jerk. That's what the spotlight person is who is not humble. They're an arrogant jerk. I don't want to be that. You don't want to be that. I think the majority of you are candles, and that's a good thing. Because if we had everybody spotlighting, that would be so bright, we'd all get blinded. I think in here we have a whole bunch of like subtle lights, and then right now we've got like one or two big lights pointing right now. Just a great illustration. You get too much spotlight, it gets overwhelming and exhausting. And we just, as we walk, our light shines, 
and it exposes people. And sometimes they look down and like, wow, that's, that's what I look like. That's what's really going on inside of my heart. And it's a great thing. I'm going to close. And um, our next-door neighbors, we've been really privileged to have amazing next-door neighbors. And uh, our next-door neighbor, the wife, is a photographer. And uh, this last week, she was at a camp for foster kids. And so the foster kids would um, uh, leave their foster homes for a week, and then they would go spend the week there, and she would take pictures. And, and so uh, I can't really show you the picture because I don't think that would probably be the most appropriate thing. But um, she got this picture where um, everyone is gone except for one kid. And the kid's foster parents, uh, we didn't know, they didn't know where they were. She, they were late, didn't show up. And the kid is just wailing in tears. And then surrounding the kid is the leader who's crying with the kid and just covering him and crying with the kid. Now, most of your kids, if you were two hours late, you would text. You'd say, we'll be there soon. Sorry, I got caught up. But you can get the PTSD of, of this kid. I was abandoned by my dad. And now my substitute dad, I have no idea where he's at, and he can't even just show up. And the only person throwing their arms around me is some guy who's known me for a week. And the picture was just so, I think, beautiful and striking and heart gut-wrenching at the same time. And, and I'm thinking about this kid, and he's going to grow up, and he's going to be jaded, and he's going to be better. I don't know who he is. I just know that that's typically what happens. I think, what is going to heal the pain of this kid? And the stepdad obviously isn't cutting it. What this kid needs is God the Father to invade his life and to show him that he is adopted and he is beloved. I love looking at my daughters and I love saying to them, I am so glad God gave you to me to raise you. And I just imagine as they grow up, the security that grows in their heart, but those, that, this kid is going to need God. He's going to need God's word. He's going to need another godly man in his life. It might be a mentor one day to look at him and say, God loves you as you are. And God the Father will be your dad. And he will heal you. And he will redeem you. And imagine this kid is going to want to hide. This kid is going to want to cover up all of his shame and darkness. And then God the Son shines a healing, redeeming, exposing, life-giving light onto his past and is present, and he paves the way for the kid's future. And imagine the kid in moments is going to want to hide from this because it's hard and it's scary, and the harder your upbringing is, the harder it is to have your sin exposed. But I imagine a day when this kid is no longer controlled by his past but knows that he is beloved because he has a heavenly father who loves him. I imagine a day when this kid is no longer weeping over his substitute dad's absence but is able to tell the story out of a place of security because he has a heavenly father who loves him. Imagine him telling the story as he grows up and he rebels and that God the Son shines a perfect, gracious light on his life and awakens him from the dead. Imagine one day he reads this verse at the end in verse 14 where he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And some of you, you have been believers and you have access to all of this and yet we are hiding and we are trying to keep the light of Jesus Christ out of our lives and yet the thing that stands between us and light is being exposed and repenting. 
I don't know what the Lord is going to do with this message in each person. Some of you dads, you need to be encouraged. Some of you, you just need to repent. Some of you, you need to come to Jesus Christ because here's what he offers you. He offers you adoption into God the Father's family for free, 100%. And so the fatherless have now a heavenly father who loves you. So what I want to do is I want to pray and we're going to celebrate what God the Father has done for us in Jesus Christ, the greatest act of love in human history. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being so good to us. Lord, for those of us who have had great dads, that is a unique grace, and I just want to say thank you for making it even easier for us to trust in you. And then, yet, God, there are so many in this room who have not had that experience. And Lord, right now, you want to be their dad. You want to be able to speak over them the truth that they are beloved, they are loved no matter what, loved beyond stoic love, but loved with affectionate love. So God, as we turn our eyes to the cross, I pray that just the illustration of Jesus and what you gave would profoundly speak to our hearts and our minds. For those of us trying to just block it out, it's too good to be true, I'm unlovable, God, would you by the power of your Holy Spirit, eradicate those lies and allow truth and the light of Jesus Christ into our hearts and our minds. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.